Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Why do we have insights when our mind is quiet? How do insights play a role in our ability to learn and when do they impact the trajectory of our lives? Welcome to Insight Out, where we explore these questions and dissect how insights influence who we are and ultimately who we become. I interview New York Times bestselling authors and some of the most influential minds of our time to find out what insights have helped to make them who they are. When I realized that the world worked in many different ways, I'm gonna choose to create a life that is specifically designed for me. I see infinite capacity to think and create. That's the magic that we all have. You can tap into that at any point in your life. You just have to decide to do it. And as a leader, you have to be a transition figure. As Dr. Covey said, be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. If you're like me, constantly working to design a life that will allow you to reach your fullest potential so that you can leave your mark on this planet, then you're in the right place. I'm glad to have you on this journey and hope you enjoy this episode of Inside Out. Scott Miller, welcome back to Inside Out. Billy, what an honor. Thanks again for the spotlight and the platform. Delighted to be back today. Well, it's well-deserved. I'm a big fan of your work. I love that you're able to take transformational insights and elevate them and make them visible to the people who need to hear them at the right time in their life. And to your point in your book, not every single insight that you share is going to resonate with every single person. It might resonate with the right person at the right time. And so one of the things that I was really struck by is that you share your own personal master mentor was a guy named Bruce Williams. And you listen to this guy for countless hours on the radio. So tell us a little bit about how we became your most significant or most influential mentor, and what was the most significant thing you learned from him? Thanks for asking that question in particular. You're the first person who's asked that. So you're right. I opened the second volume in the 10-volume series, Master Mentors, kind of reframing the paradigm of what a mentor is. I think most of us think a mentor is someone on the 10th floor, somebody in the C-suite or the mayor, or someone who's done exactly what we're trying to do, when in fact, that's not true. I don't think you have to know your mentor. My biggest mentor in life to your opening is a man named Bruce Williams, who was really kind of the godfather of talk radio. He had a radio program five nights a week back in the 70s, maybe the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. He kind of was, you know, he was the Dave Ramsey before Dave Ramsey and the Rush Limbaugh before Rush Limbaugh went out the politics. My point is he was an attorney and a business owner and an entrepreneur. And so he had this radio program where I listened to on AM every night as a teenager when most kids were listening to, you know, Def Leppard or Journey. I was listening to Bruce Williams geeking out. And he was he talked about everything from how to buy a home, how to sell a home, how to buy a car, how to invest in real estate, how to manage your finances, how to set up a business. It was all things sort of finance, business, legal how to manage your inheritance, how to set up an estate. Do you need an attorney? Do you need a will? What's the living power of attorney? And so for, gosh, a decade, I listened to him three hours a night, just absorbed all of this sort of business acumen. And without an MBA, 
I ended up becoming, you know, the chief marketing officer of a public company. A, because I worked my butt off and B, because they helped me. See, I think I, I came into the game with a strong, broad knowledge, working knowledge of business and finance and some late legal stuff. And I never met Bruce Williams. He never knew I was alive. He died a couple of years ago, having never known that a guy named Scott Miller in Orlando, Florida, listened to him for thousands of hours. But bar none, Bruce Williams was my most impactful mentor in my life. And so I just wanted to reframe the fact that yeah. I don't think you have to know or be in an intimate relationship, professional relationship with your mentor at all. And so these master mentors that I identify, 30 best-selling authors, business titans, celebrities, or otherwise, you can commune with them and make them your mentors without formally asking them to do so for an hour a week, every Thursday for six weeks or whatever your typical mentoring process might be. Yeah, it makes perfect sense because a mentor does not, to your point, need to follow a strict set of guidelines that have to be somebody that you meet with every week or somebody that you personally know. All of that can be washed aside if you really remember the, the core tenet of, of what a mentor is and how a mentor can affect our lives. And that is, I believe, at its core, the ability to transform someone and to provide insights that help somebody understand how to be better at something, do something better, or live in a different way. And that's where transformation really has its, to me, most significant power. This show is all about insights. I mean, literally the title is Inside Out. So, but I'm curious from your perspective, how do you define a transformational insight? Yeah, I admit it's a little bit high level. It's a big promise, right? Like you said, not everything in this book will be transformational for each person reading it at that moment in their life. Some might be going through the ending of a relationship, or perhaps they're a new parent. Perhaps they've lost someone in their life. Perhaps they gained a job or lost a job. Perhaps they went bankrupt or they're launching a business. So I named it transformative, transformational, because each one of these has the power to do that when it hits you at the right time of your life. That's why all the chapters are very short. They're very episodic, and you can kind of start anywhere, go everywhere, kind of chicken soup for the soul, right? You can read what makes sense for you. I think the power of transformation it has the power for you to see yourself differently. It has the power for you to challenge your paradigm, your mindset, your belief system to say, gosh, I always thought about gratitude in this way, but now I'm going to think about gratitude in this way. Or I thought about what's next for me or my business model. They're personal and professional. I think it's really intended to help kind of shake you to say, you've been in this pattern of thinking, this line of behavior, and just shaking a little bit to say, is that serving you well? Is that serving those around you well? What would happen if you actually just looked at it this way? Think of yourself or others in a little bit different way. And I think that's the impact that the first volume had and the new volume, volume two will have as well. I, I highlight 30 people that come from the podcast and the book's on pre-sale now. It's already selling pretty well because I think it's hitting people at a time where they don't have time to read 70,000 word books, right? Or sit down for three hours straight and read a book. This is the kind of book where you can read for four minutes or six minutes, your head hits the pillow and think about it and then pick it up tomorrow night or pick it up a week from now. And that's how I'm writing my books for kind of the modern professional that needs short nuggets, easy to read whenever you want. And there's a book title right there, The Modern Professional. But no, I mean, ease of reading this book, you can't underplay that because to your point, 
you don't need to spend an hour. You could spend a few minutes and you're going to get something and it may shake you. I would say like rattle your cage, you know, like how do we get somebody to shift their thinking to break a pattern and then more importantly, or as importantly, take action. And that's where I want to go next. So look, okay, we identify and you've identified in this volume and 30 in the past. And I know there's a volume three coming, which is a testament to your ability to encapsulate these insights in a way that is you're infusing story, your own personal anecdotes, and all sorts of other things that help to elevate these, what could be a one-line insight into something that's more tangible and going to tap into emotion a little bit better. But how do we take the insight or how do you suggest taking insights and having a model or a way of applying these learnings into our lives? Well, so as you mentioned, the book is organized with 30 people, 30 insights. You kind of can read it in 30 days. And what I've taken is fairly common topics and just reframed them. Here's a good example. One of the mentors is a man named John Huntsman. He's the former two-term governor of Utah. He ran for the presidency back in 2012. He was our U.S. ambassador to Russia, China, and Singapore. And he's actually from an extraordinarily wealthy family. He has a billion dollars net worth that he inherited from his parents, as did all of his siblings from the Huntsman Petrochemical Company. But the story I write about John Huntsman is about hard work still matters. We hear this idea of work smarter, not harder. Sure, work smarter. But I tell you, I think hard work still matters. And John, and I prove in the chapter, has been an enormously hardworking professional in spite of having a billion-dollar inheritance, right? He's super productive. And so at the end of each chapter, I ask a provocative question. What does this mean to you? What are you going to do next? I recap it. So my gift to everybody, I hope, is highlighting a mentor, usually writing a little bit about them, and then pivoting outside of them and sharing, as you mentioned, a story that I think is relatable either out of my life or somebody else's life, and then kind of coming back to the mentor, recapping what is the transformational insight and then asking you a provocative question around basically, how do you relate to this and what are you going to do now? What's next? And it's as simple as that. In each chapter, in fact, most people that comment to me say, I liked the question at the end as much as I liked the entire story. So I've written a little bit of a pithy question just to make sure people get the big idea and that they think about it in ways that could, to quote you, kind of propel them forward, to help them accomplish what it is they're trying to do in life, personally and professionally. you got to kind of read the book to get the cadence and the gist of it. Just, it's, it's funny, it's tender, it's emotional, it's practical. Is it good to great? It's not. Is it built to last? It's not, meaning these big, iconic business books. I don't want to write those books. I want to write books that are super relatable, that are breezy and easy, and give people access to the remarkable access I've had. I now am privileged to host what is the world's largest weekly leadership podcast. It's between six and seven million people each Tuesday. Today, I interviewed the author of The Four Agreements, Don Ruel and Ruiz. Yeah. Last week, I interviewed Ariana Huffington. Next week, it's Guy Raz, you know, from the podcast, How I Made This. And so, I'm trying to make this book an extension of the podcast to say, here's a key thing I picked up from this person, on or off the air. Oftentimes, the insights are things that they mentioned to me when the camera wasn't rolling. And then with their permission, I wrote about it in the book. So the book is meant to shine a spotlight onto these some famous and some not so famous guests, and then to give access to the reader on, here's something in my own 30 years of, you know, 
having a remarkable career, ups and downs, I think people could benefit from. And I think that the chapters will hit different people differently. I love the idea of a provocative question, helping to inspire the action or what are you going to do next? Because ultimately it's theoretical when it's read and until you apply it into your own life, it, it doesn't become tangible or it won't have the same significance. Speaking of significance, you have a great story that is one of the early stories in the book about a bus ride, specifically a bus ride where somebody's life has changed and that person's life has changed because of a transformational leader, somebody that is able to inspire in them something that they maybe couldn't inspire in themselves. Can you tell that story briefly and also highlight why it's so important and why he thought it was so important that he should share that story and even regretted not sharing it earlier. I love your questions and I'm enjoying this podcast. So who you're referring to is a man named Bobby Herrera. It's probably my favorite story out of both books, the first 30 mentors and the second 30 mentors. He's an entrepreneur. He wrote a very uh, tender book called The Gift of Struggle. Bobby Herrera is, I believe, Mexican by birth and raised, I think, in Texas in a large family. And the story that you mentioned is a story that he shares both in his book and on my podcast and now in my book, Master Mentors, where I think he was one of nine children, if I'm not mistaken. I need to clarify that. Anyway, he and his brother were high school football players. And after each high school football game on Friday nights, the, all the football players would take a bus after the game, winning or losing, and they would stop at a local restaurant. I'm going to guess it wasn't Ruth's Chris, probably more like Fizzler or McDonald's, right? Who knows? And anyway, Bobby and his brother knew that they did not get off the bus to go in the restaurant because they couldn't afford it. Their mother packed them a lunch and every game, Bobby and his brother sat on the bus while the entire football team went into the restaurant and had dinner. Imagine how humiliating that was. It's hard for me to tell the story without um, getting emotional. And then one day when the bus stopped and everybody got off to go into the restaurant, one of the team members' fathers got back on the bus, walked back to Bobby and his brother and said, hey guys, I'd like for you to be my guest tonight at dinner. I'm going to pay for your meal. No one needs to know. No one will ever know. Don't be embarrassed. I just have one thing to ask in return. Someday do the same thing for somebody else. Mm -hmm. Not a big deal. I'm going to guess it was the sizzler, probably $6.99 a person. Who knows? I don't know where it was. I should find out. Fast forward 30 years. Bobby had a struggle early in life. He did, couldn't see tomorrow, let alone his hand in front of his face. Right? had no vision for his life. Joins the army, works super hard, builds this remarkable business he becomes the CEO of. And 30 years later, he writes a book called The Gift of Struggle at his book launch party. He finds the man 30 years ago. He's still alive. His name is Mr. Teague. Flies Mr. Teague into this several hundred person book launch party. And he tells this story. Mr. Teague, you were the first person who ever made me feel like I had been seen. You were the first person in my life that made me feel like I was something, like I was worth investing in. It's a remarkable story. Mr. Teague then gets a standing ovation and he shares this story, goes home, calls back Bobby Herrera and says, you don't realize what that meant to me. I hadn't forgotten the bus thing 30 years ago, but that you would have found me and flown me in and talked to me about the person in your life who was a transition figure that was the first person who ever made you feel like you'd been seen. So the question in the chapter, of course, is who are you 
making feel seen. It's a lovely story. It's a good example of some of the tenderness in the book. And then some of the stories are much more business-oriented or business model-focused or your productivity system. But this is a lovely story that I think should haunt all of us in a good way. Who made you feel seen? And who are you making feel seen? Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's someone who works for you. Maybe it's the altar server at church. Maybe it's someone on the side of the road. I'm so delighted that you talked about this. The chapter is about becoming a transition figure in someone's life. Mm -hmm. And for Bobby Herrera, it was the simple as someone boarding the bus and coming back and saying, be my guest to dinner. No one needs to know. It's a story that has stuck with me for years. It's hard not to. You can't forget it. And that's a testament to the story and then your ability to retell the story in a meaningful, heartfelt, impactful way. And to your point, a transition figure, it may be something so simple that at the time they may not even think about, yet it had such a long lasting effect, so much so that 30 years in the future, he's still thinking about it and wants to honor this event that took place. And Billy, it could be something as simple as walking up to someone and saying, I think you're going to be a great lawyer someday, or you have creative genius in you that nobody sees. And I want you to nurture that. Or do you know you're a really good basketball player? You're a great communicator. I remember once someone in my teens told me, and they were Israeli. They spoke Hebrew. I worked in a bakery and they asked me for some directions and I gave it to them. Like, you know, here, turn left there, turn right there, look for that. And they said to me, wow, you have a great command of the English language. I was 19 years old. I'm now 54. I can tell you what pastry I was putting in the bag Wow! when that Israeli lady told me, you are a great communicator. You have a great command of the English language. No one had ever said that to me before. By the way, I have a stutter. I have a very pronounced stutter. And I've had years of speech pathology. This is 35 years ago. You never know when you're making someone feel seen. And the other thing that stands out about this particular chapter of the book, or I don't even know if you call them chapters, to be honest, but this particular section is that he, Bobby, wish he had talked about it more. It's an interesting point to remember because I don't think people know a lot of times what makes a transition figure a transition figure. Why did he want to share? Or why did he wish he had shared it more yeah. earlier yeah. on? I think later in life, Bobby came to recognize that he wasn't comfortable being vulnerable. He didn't know how to share his feelings. He didn't have the either the vocabulary or the humility or the comfortability to talk about his struggles. He could think about them and he knew them. But I think that one of the biggest gifts to your point that Bobby's given us is you don't have to have the right words to describe it. If you've got something to say, just say it. Start with, I'd like to share something with you. I might not use the right words. I might need a do-over. I haven't really thought through this, but I want you to know my intent in saying this is the following. And then just say it. Let it flow out and stumble. You've already asked for forgiveness. You've already asked for a do-over. You've already said, I might not use the wrong words, but people now know your intent. And as long as it's pure, oh my gosh, they're going to forget whether you use this word or that word or whether you stuttered or stumbled. And so I think Bobby will share with you that for many years, he didn't have the confidence and wasn't comfortable being vulnerable enough 
to talk. He was embarrassed by it, right? He was embarrassed by his you know, kind of early humble beginnings and his family's financial status and his own lack of confidence in himself and education and discipline. Went on to serve our country in the services, which is, you know, in and of itself, something that's remarkable. So to your point, Billy, vulnerability is a leadership competency. Vulnerability is a parenting competency. It's a relationship competency. Just spit it out. Just say, I'm not quite sure how this is going to sound. My intent is to be vulnerable and transparent. I just got to tell you, that hurt my feelings when you said that. Or that really lifted me up. I don't know if you had the power, if you know the power of that text you sent me two weeks ago when you said to me, you were really proud of me and you were, you admired my courage on that. I can't tell you how much that meant to me, but I want you to know it made me feel special. Maybe special is the wrong word, but you get the point. Anyway, you get the point, right? It's just, don't pick your words so carefully. Yeah, sometimes you just got to let it out, right? You just, <laughs> you just got to let it out. And if it makes you feel more comfortable to have a, a disclaimer and you did a yeah. beautiful job of outlining what that disclaimer could be. Thanks. If it gives you permission to be vulnerable, then do it. Yeah. And if it allows you to say what you should be saying, but are afraid to say, James Altucher said, he doesn't hit publish on a post until he's afraid of what people will think of him. Wow. That's great advice. Yeah. When we have people who have someone that passes in their lives or there's some tragedy, we don't know what to say. And if we've been coached at all on, well, don't say that and don't say that and well, don't ask this question and don't assume that, well, a lot of us end up saying nothing because we're so mortified that we're going to say the wrong thing. I don't think that's really the right thing. The right thing is to say is, I don't know what to say. And quite frankly, I'm scared and I'm fumbling, but I just want you to know I'm thinking about you and I care about you. I don't know what to say. I don't want to say the wrong thing. Here's a good example. A good friend of mine's father passed recently, and we were talking about it on the phone. Later in life, he passed. And I said to her, wow, man, he had a great run. He was like 88. And I said, wow, he had a great run. This is a good friend of mine's father passed. And she said to me, that's not helpful, Scott. And I thought, ouch. My intention was to bring some perspective and calm. And she said back to me, that wasn't helpful. She was irritated with me. And I thought, that was a little harsh, but I, I didn't say anything. I said, I'm so sorry. That wasn't my intent. I was thinking, really? I was just trying to be gracious to you. And so my own father passed two weeks ago at 86. I think he had a great run. And so I've just been really mindful to make sure that when someone says something to me that I don't take it personal, I don't take offense. I know their intent is to help me. So I'm not going to take it personal. I think it's good advice to all of us is when people are saying something to you, it's really about them. It's not about you. Just accept it graciously. Take what's good. Leave what's bad. I think having thick skin is not a good thing because with thick skin, you don't let stuff in but then nothing comes out either. Mm -hmm. Instead, have like translucent, transparent skin. Stuff comes in, stuff comes out. And I think generally assuming good intent in people is a really valuable insight. Most people intend to be good, helpful people. We just generally say pretty stupid stuff because we don't know what to say. Believe me, you had me at assume positive intent because this is something that when I interviewed Liz Wiseman, we talked about this. My old boss who was somebody who had an opportunity to work with Liz for years, Ben Putterman, he taught me that originally. So it was a topic of conversation. It is so important. And what a great dovetail into 
what I wanted to talk about next is a few different things. A lot of self, right? So self-worth, self-esteem, self-confidence, which can be, you talk about the nuance. And I also love that you talked about the thick skin thing, because to your point in the book, it needs to, things need to come out. They need to go come in. They need to go out. Yeah. Let's talk about the nuance between self-worth, self-esteem, and self-confidence, which I know is very important to you to cover, especially in light of the fact that Sean Covey and the entire Covey family, it's probably pretty personal for you because you're sort of an outsider in this yeah. dynamic, crazy family that's done amazing things. And I know self-worth was something that you thought about. So this was Sean Covey, as you mentioned, a bit of a reluctant mentor in the book. Of course, he's the author of the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Teens, right? His dad is Stephen Covey. And that book has gone on to sell tens of millions of copies. And Sean's a star college athlete. He's a famous author and speaker and was a colleague of mine on the executive team. And I had done a stint in Chicago for the Franklin Covey Company prior to coming back and becoming the chief marketing officer. I'd been in Chicago for six years running a business unit. And one day, I'd just come back to Salt Lake City, where our headquarters is, and I was commenting to Sean about how much I enjoyed one of his recent books called The Six Most Important Decisions You'll Ever Make. Now, I wasn't a parent. I wasn't even married at the time, but it was a, a book aimed at kind of teenagers on these are six things you're going to be faced with. And I was complimenting Sean on how valuable I thought the book was. I was in my 30s. This book was aimed at like teenagers. And somehow in this like sideways conversation, Sean started talking about the difference between self-esteem, self-confidence, and self-worth. And I had never even thought about them as being different. I think most of us use them interchangeably. We think self-confidence, self-esteem, and self-worth are kind of all the same. And so for me, the insight wasn't really how much they were different in their meaning. It was just that, in fact, they are different. We tend to use the words efficiency and effectiveness the same. We tend to use the words productivity and efficiency the same. And the fact of the matter is, is that self-esteem, self-confidence, and self-worth are all different. And I won't spend time right now defining all of them, but for me, the aha was, and Billy, I'm a religious person, but whether your listeners or viewers aren't, I think the principle is the same. For me, from Sean, who, by the way, Sean is also a religious person, although we don't share the same faith, he said to me, your self-worth is God-given. It's creator-given. It's inherent. Everyone has the same self-worth, whether you are religious or whether you are not, whether you are a superstar or whether you're living in India hand-to-mouth on the side of the road. Our self-worth is external to us. We can't lessen it. Nobody else can increase it. Your self-worth is creator-given. Now, your self-esteem and your self-confidence ebbs and flows based on your sense of self and the kind of relationships you're in and the things that you do that you value or don't value. But your self-worth is over here and it cannot be changed and no one else can change it. And for me, that was an epiphany. That was a transformational insight to view. My self-worth is the same as Tony Robbins and Ariana Huffington and Michelle Obama and Donald Trump and Ben Affleck, right? Name whoever your hero is in life. By the way, none of those are my heroes in life. <laughs> but my point is, that was a profound transformational insight for me. Now, your listeners might think, well, duh. I had just never heard those three things separated and defined very separately. It's given me a sense of peace when I think that my self-worth is equal 
to somebody else who might be getting more credit than I am or somebody else who I think is more important or a bigger contribution. And then so I go work on my self-esteem and my self-confidence, which can be impacted by others and by myself, but my self-worth is inherent because it's externally given to me by whoever I think my creator was. And I liked that definition by Sean Covey. It makes perfect sense. And it's appropriate that it comes from him in light of your own personal journey, being a part of an organization that's named after, let's face it, one of the most prolific authors ever. And then his family, what does he have? Eight, nine children, some of whom have also been prolific writers. Right. Talk a little bit about that personal side of it so that the audience doesn't understand. Yeah, that was kind of the gist of the story is after I heard Sean share this, several years later, Sean and I became peers. We were both executive vice presidents, officers in the company. Of course, Sean's brand being significantly bigger than mine globally, although I'm on the rise, Sean Cuffey, so watch out. I would often sit in meetings and everybody would always ask about Sean's dad and Sean's mom and Sean's sisters and Sean's family cabin. And no one ever asked about my dad. No one ever asked about my family or my family's cabin or my mother's health. And I used to find myself sometimes in a petty way, kind of jealous of Sean's last name. And well, Sean's much more important than I am. And I think it's important to recognize that as humans, we all have petty jealousies and insecurities. And I was kind of dealing with it. And I kind of harked back in the middle of an executive team meeting where I was feeling especially unworthy because it was always about Sean's family. By the way, the company is named after his father and I have a job because of his father. So I'm not dismissive of that, dismissive. I just had to realize that not everything is about me and not everything's about my family. And Sean's family did create this company. And that probably has more to do with my self-esteem, my self-confidence than it does my self-worth. Because that sometimes I was, I think, feeling like my self-worth was less than. You got to kind of read the story to get the gist. But it was, it was, I think it was a transformative insight for me to stop taking things personally, stop making everything about me. Stop seeing everything through my lens. And is that about me or about you? Or have I got enough attention or spotlight or credit or fame or whatever it was? And maybe that chapter was a bit of a confessional (laughs) that others can't relate to, but I'll bet they can. Because I think all of us sometimes confuse our self-worth with our self-confidence and our self-esteem. And I'm sure writing the book was cathartic in many ways, not just for that specific story, but you learn about yourself. Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I've written a lot of books and I'm writing a lot more. And I think the more I write, I tend to be brutally honest, not like, you know, compromisingly honest with anybody else's secrets. I'm not writing tell-alls. Maybe they are about me. And I do try to write in a way, Billy, that's vulnerable and transparent to give other people the confidence and the latitude to own their failures, own your insecurities, talk about them, teach through them, mentor through them. I think it's one of the commonalities that all the mentors have in the book is they have an abundance mentality, but it's grounded in their self-confidence. They can talk about all the mistakes they made. Most of them will tell you, oh my gosh, I've had four or five successes in my life. I've had hundreds of failures, hundreds of books that weren't published, columns that weren't accepted, articles that weren't printed, TV programs that weren't optioned, right? These mentors, if they're really honest and they will be, they'll tell you they've had hundreds, if not thousands of failures. They've had three or four, five, or one success. 
And that's all we tend to see is their one big best-selling book or their one big TV program or their one big business. When you, when you peel the onion back, oh my gosh, you had four bankruptcies or you had four things that went wrong. That's another chapter in the book is talking about there's no such thing as overnight success. There is overnight fame and it's usually either ill-gotten or fleeting. There is no such thing as overnight success. I highlight one of the mentors and talk about that, Tiffany Aliche. When you peel the covers back on all these big celebrities and thought leaders and best-selling authors and business titans, and when they're really honest and vulnerable, they become much more relatable about how they did not have a linear path to success. It was littered with setbacks that you know nothing about. And most of them are willing to talk about, though. 100%. And the... Fascinating thing that when I read the book, in every single story and every single insight, there's something that I could take away. It made me ponder. It made me think. And one particular thing that I felt especially connected to was what Patrick Bet David shared about your future truth. I can't stop thinking about it. So sharing this concept of your future truth should be your present truth is so powerful. Talk about that one. I love that you've picked these mentors to highlight. Patrick Bet David is uh, Middle Eastern by birth and race, and he uh, lived in a refugee camp. He's Persian, he's Iranian, and his family fled the country during the revolution. And he ended up in a refugee camp somewhere in the middle of the Middle East, came to the US, and was a scrappy salesperson, I think at like Bally's or some. Jim quit, opened up an insurance business and become a self-made multimillionaire now. And he wrote a book called Your Next Five Moves. One of my top 10 favorite books of thousands that I've read, Your Next Five Moves. On the cover of the book is a chess board, right? Kind of like Your Next Five Moves. And in this book, he talks about the power of not just thinking in, but speaking in your future truth, meaning not someday I'm going to write a book and becoming a best-selling author, but I am a best-selling author. Now, some might think that is a lie. Let's put that aside for a second. I don't recommend you go into the bank and ask for a loan and say, I have a business that does $5 million a year. That's called fraud, right? So you got to be careful about differentiating between what is a lie for personal gain and what is your mentality? What is your future truth? I am a best-selling author. I am a business titan. I am a grandfather. I am married. I am a gardener. I am a triathlete. And that you start thinking and talking and behaving in your future truth as if it was your present truth. And I've done it. I started calling in full transparency my podcast, the world's largest leadership podcast, before it was. And I willed it with a very strong team to become the world's largest weekly leadership podcast. I started saying it was before it was because it was my future truth and I intended to make it happen. Now, some of you who have um, stronger character than me will say, well, you were lying. I say I was speaking in my future truth. I think there is a difference between lying for personal gain and for opportunistic or fraudulent activity and speaking in your future truth. But the fact of the matter is it probably was the largest leadership podcast long before I realized it. But I try to be a really judicious practitioner of this, never speaking in a way that gives someone a, an impression of something is true when it's not. 
So that means most of the time I speak in my future truth alone with myself. I am the owner of a $30 million business. I am a successful 10-time author. I am the owner of this agency. When it maybe is incubating, it's budding. And then I act and think in accordance with the words that I'm saying. You got to kind of read the book and read the chapter to recognize it because someone could get the wrong impression right now. No, that's just called embellishing. That's just called lying. That's just, no, I actually think there is great value in speaking and thinking in your future truth. It's internal more than anything else. Totally. And maybe sometimes you let things, you speak it into existence. You manifest it. And can someone fault you for that? Can I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I get it. And I, believe me, character is important to me. People can fault <laughs> me, but let the record show, I am the host of the world's largest weekly leadership podcast. <laughs> you made it happen. There's so many different ways we could end this. But I want to encourage everyone who's listened to this episode. If the book's not out yet, make sure you pre-order. If the book is out, make sure you order. Pay special close attention. There's so many great nuggets in there. We don't need to go into these, but self-regulation, self-awareness, specifically self-awareness, external self-awareness. And we could talk about those endlessly. And I'm big on both of those. But where I want to end is on habits. I want you to talk a little bit about why you selected, and he's well-known, BJ Fogg is well-known in the, in the habit space for tiny habits, but there's a formula, this BMAP formula. And I wonder if you could speak to why you selected this, because I think it's a great way to end, because here's the thing. All of this, again, is theory until we start to apply it, until we start to build some habits or some momentum around lifestyle changes or tweaks into the way in which we operate or shift in our own patterns and habits play a big role. So talk a little bit about that, and then we'll wind down. Sure. I think I interviewed BJ Fogg because obviously, you know, 26 years in the Franklin Covey Company, the seven habits of highly effective people, I've always been fascinated with the science and the art around habits. In fact, I've already started writing volume three, and James Clear is one of the 30 mentors in volume three, obviously the gentleman who wrote Atomic Habits, which has blown every book off the list for I don't know how many years now. B.J. Fogg is an interesting character, right? Researcher, teacher at Stanford, a very colorful personality. He wrote this book called Tiny Habits, really about understanding how small micro habits have the potential to create sustainable and even consequential changes in our behavior, recognizing that timing and ease of action are super important to changing our habits. I highly recommend his book, Tiny Habits or listen to my podcast interview with him. I share a story in there around how, I think it was the American Red Cross that was trying to raise money for a earthquake Haitian relief fund. Mm -hmm. And they finally figured out how to make it so easy for people to do it, like by texting and just you know, automatically donating and had this major campaign. So if anybody is listening right now and you're in sales, you're in marketing, you're in advertising, you're in the business of getting anybody to change their behavior, also known as, being a spouse or a parent, <laughs> understanding the science and the formula behind tiny habits. I'll let him read the book to learn more about the formula. But it's basically understanding how to combine timing and sort of ease of action. Whether you're trying to go to the gym, then make sure you put out your equipment or whatever it is that might give you an excuse. And it really is not trying to make you know, massive overhauls in your life, but say, what are some small habits I might have? Here's a good idea. Here's a good example. 
I love bread. I love carbs. I was raised in a family who ate bread. I worked at a bakery for six years. Um, I don't use drugs. I moderately consume alcohol. I don't smoke. My weakness in life is bread in any form. Croissants, pastries, Danish, baguettes. I love bread. And I've got about one pound of bread I need to get rid of around my stomach. Okay, five. And so I've got to make sure that I don't bring bread in the house. If I don't have it, I won't eat it. And so just small things like when I go to the grocery store, I am really diligent on buying some nuts and maybe buying some crackers. I don't love crackers, but it tends to satiate my bread need a little bit. So I try to buy things that are like, but not really bread. Because my problem is I can't stop. I'll eat you know, one dinner roll. No, I'll eat four. One cracker, I'll eat two, right? So just small things that allow me to really think about how can I make small changes in my life that actually could have consequential changes? Because we know bread turns into sugar and sugar turns into diabetes and diabetes turns into blindness and losing your leg. And there is epidemic. There's a problem with diabetes in the world right now. And so we think about eating sugar, but eating bread is eating sugar. And I love bread. And I want to keep my legs and my eyes when I'm 70 years old. So read the chapter. But BJ Fogg is a great scientist on small micro habits, tiny habits, he calls them. And there's a couple of videos that are embedded in the book that remind you about how sometimes the metaphor that I use is a video of Dr. Covey. You know, these ocean liners, they have these 10, 12 story rudders, like 10 stories high rudders that change the ship. But beneath this rudder is like a three foot trim tab rudder. And it really is that small rudder that helps to change the 12 story rudder. And that's what I'm focused on in this chapter is focus on the trim tab rudder as opposed to trying you know, to focus on massive changes in your life. I'm never going to give up bread. <laughs> and it's a great video. Yeah, thank you. And it articulates what you've shared so beautifully and that these small habits, they help to guide. And I, I think that the formula, to your point, it's the intersection of the motivation, which is intersected with the timing with the ease of implementation and those collectively help to make this habit forming more likely to stick and this behavior to actually change as a result of just being smart about yeah. the way, and he's, and he's obviously studied it, so. He's basically telling the reader and the listener, if there's something you wanna change in your life, kind of break it down into small steps and what are some small things you could do to make your likelihood more that you will exercise, that you will go on a walk, that you will, you know, just small things in your life. Put your shoes by the front door so you see them every day. Go around the block once. Don't go around the block 15 times. Walk around once today. Walk around once tomorrow. Walk around once on Wednesday. On Thursday, walk around twice. Whatever it is, right? Just breaking it down because sometimes I think for all of us, me included, it's so daunting to take on big massive changes, but you can get there with what he calls these tiny habits. It's the easy button for habits. And you use the Red Cross example, which is, hey, motivation was high. There's this giant earthquake that ravages Haiti. And yeah, people want, there's the, there's the desire to donate, to help, to support. But then how do you convert that desire to action? Well, make it super easy for them to donate as opposed to knocking on doors one by one. Right. Or call 1-800-whatever. <laughs> this yeah. was just, you know, pushed a text. Yeah. Here's the number. Here's a text. And you got one of three options. And, go, and I think it went right to your 
to your your credit card bill, your phone bill, right? They set up something that in and they had an unprecedented campaign when they realized that there was a high motivation, there was a strong barrier to entry, and the timing was now. And I think there's so many lessons that companies that are trying to get their consumers, their clients to take action towards their, their behavior. It's why BJ Fogg is in such demand consulting with companies on how to make it easier for clients to purchase your products. Mm-hmm. Make it the experience of forming a habit frictionless. I'll share one story as we close out here. As I mentioned, I worked for Tesla and I don't know if this is real or not real, but one of the stories I heard is Elon wants to make it so simple to buy a a Tesla that you could fall asleep on your keyboard and you could order one. The reason why BJ Fogg and others who are so well-versed in this idea of getting people to take action and making it super easy is because the more you could create a frictionless experience, especially a frictionless buying experience, the more customers you're going to have and the easier it will be for you to convert people who have the motivation by giving them that easy button. So speaking of easy button, make sure you go press the button and buy Scott Miller's book. It is amazing. Not only volume one, which you could buy immediately, but Master Mentors volume two is coming out. It's on pre-sale now and soon volume three as well as all his amazing books. Scott, I'm going to let you bring it home. Where should people find more? Obviously, On Leadership is the podcast, yeah. which is a great podcast. But where else uh, would you suggest people get more of the brilliance that you share? Well, my wife would say no one wants more, but thank you for <laughs> offering. You can visit my website, scottjeffreymiller.com. And if you actually connect to me on LinkedIn, if you want to send me your shipping address, I'll put a copy of the card deck. So for all my books, I create a card deck, like a physical card deck with each of the mentors. I'll ship all of your listeners and viewers a free card deck. If you connect to me on LinkedIn, message me your shipping address. I won't come to your house ever, I promise, but I'll ship you a complimentary card deck on volume two that has all the mentors, including a QR code that goes right to their podcast interview. And it mentions all of the transformational insights. So thanks again for the um, platform today. My pleasure. And I can't wait to do it again for volume three. Scott Miller, thank you for being on Inside Out. Thanks for your generosity. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Out. I hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in business and in life. If you like this show, the best payment you can give is to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. You can also listen to past episodes and see a breakdown of all the best insights by going to insightoutshow.com. And for the record, there's no greater compliment than sharing this show with your friends on social media. So if there's an insight or a lesson that you liked, please share it and tag both me and today's guest. And until next time, remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out.